Good morning, and you are very welcome to the program. Forgive my absence, please, but I am back. Between now and nine, another plot twist from Brussels in the passage of the nature restoration law. Are we at the beginning of the end for live export of calves? And Brenda Donoghue trips the light fantastic. Uh, first off this morning, really big thank you to the three people who sat in this seat while I was away on loan to television for the last couple of months. To Ella, to Brenda, to Hannah Quinn Mulligan. You see, everybody wants to get a go of this show. They know it's the best gig in radio. That's why there was three of them. But thank you very much, all three of you. Very reassuring to know while you're away that all of you listening were very entertained and informed by those three. Very capable set of hands. We're going to begin this morning with a stubborn point of controversy that is about to get even more contentious. The live export trade for calves. Cruel and inhumane, say some, regulated to the highest standards in the world, say others. There will be those who will hear the noise in the background here who will say, well, that's an indication that these animals are distressed. What do you say to them? I, I'll give an answer. If you put, if you put just four, 300 sucks in this shed here, you put all the 300 young lads in together they're after having their dinner, right? Would they not be all talking to each other and shouting and roaring? Calf exporter Seamus Scallon on the programme back in April. Right now, he and everybody else is allowed to transport calves at 14 days of age. But Declan O'Brien, the Farmer's Journal, tells us that the Department of Agriculture has been floating the idea of that limit becoming 28 days old, ahead of possible new rules from Brussels coming in December. So would keeping calves on farms for the first month of their lives allay the concerns of the animal welfare campaigners? Might it actually signal the beginning of the end of live export of calves? If so, what on earth would we do with all of those animals? All questions we're going to be pouring over in a minute, but I want to begin on the farm of DJ Cohan and Tim in West Cork to get a feel for how disrupted his dairy operation would be if he had to house calves for a month before they could be exported. His calf shed a million miles away from the layerage that you just heard. Very peaceful. His calves are as well-fed and as comfortable as any you've ever seen. Vigorous suckling at a feeder by a group of three-week-old calves who are due to be collected later on that day for export to the veal market on the continent. DJ is in the milk business and doesn't see himself as a calf-rearing specialist, so it is always a bit of a relief to see them leave the yard. When your transporter comes to take those calves away, I'd imagine there's a bit of a sigh of relief. A little there? bit, oh, definitely, yeah. Well, he'd only take maybe eight or ten at a time, but like, there's, there's, it's, it's nice to see him going, yeah, definitely, yeah. There'll be about 160 calves born on this farm this year most of them in the space of a few weeks in spring, and making sure that everything is properly fed and bedded adds significantly to DJ's workload. Well, they always say hunger's the best sauce of all, so I mean, if they're hungry, they will suck it. If they're hungry, they will will drink it eventually, obviously, of course. It is a bit of work in it, of course, obviously. There's obviously these people specialising it. But um, it's like a baby calf. If the baby calf won't drink, when he'll get hungry, he will drink. 
but that's something that you have to monitor its time out of your oh, day. Oh, without a shadow of a doubt, the baby calf, the first 24 hours of a, of a baby calf's life, you could spend 20 minutes feeding a single calf. It's, just, it's part of the job. You just have to do it. Yeah. Multiply by well, 160 be, across a year. Exactly, yeah. They could be, in the springtime, you could have five or six cows calving in a day. Every day, in a day. Mm-hmm. They like they watch each other and they, could, they might be five or six calves together then, so you just have to deal with it. These are really, we, we've just had to host a new snow at the moment. There's only 60, there's only, what, 25 calves here. And if it had to hold 60 calves for a week longer? We often did because of the weather. Like if the boat, is, if a ferry is cancelled or whatever, like the, calves, the calves just won't move. Calves won't move. So it's, it's, just, it's just hassle more than it is. Like it's, it's, it is hassle. That must be a ferocious amount of extra labour for you, though, when you're in the middle of calving to have that many calves around for an extra week or so. There's an extra, oh, definitely is, there's no question about it, there's an extra half, no more in evening feeding calves, and plus the costs and the labour, the straw, the bedding, it's the housing, it's a big thing, like you're, you're overcrowding, your, your hoses are, hose are getting full. I'd imagine pneumonia must be a bit of a worry then as well. The more, like this house now, we put in a fan into this house five or six years ago, it, it, was, it was a game changer, like we can adjust the fan as the, as the, as the, as the temperature rises in the house, we can turn up the fan as the temperature lowers, we turn it down, but like it's, it's housing is vital, like having housing right. How much are you paying a bale for your straw now? Uh, about 25 euros I think for a bale of straw, yeah. And that was? 12 euros a bale. Okay. So it would be a not inconsiderable additional cost bedding for calves if you did have to keep them longer. Oh, oh definitely. Yeah. Straw. Like last year, we, last year we had about 300 bales of straw. This year we had only less than 200 bales of straw. Got because straw just wasn't there this year. So again, that could potentially be a bit of a welfare issue if you have to keep calves longer and you can't get that straw, you can't get oh, that bedding for them. Oh, definitely. Because yeah, baby calves do consume straw. They do, and it's, it's vital to keep them dry and warm. The straw is, is a vital component. Ultimately, DJ says that he would adapt to the labour, the bedding and the cost issues of having the calves around for an extra few weeks if that's what the law changes to. But back in the kitchen, over a cup of tea, a serious road bump emerges. Obviously, we're not going to know for a few weeks yet what plans the Commission actually have, but let's just say that there is a limit of 28 days before export put on it. What's that going to do to the calves that you're trying to export? It'll be harder for the men to buy them to export them because he has to have them on the, on the farm in, in the continent for at 35 days, so he's only seven days to export them in, which is practically impossible, to be honest about it. Is it really? Because, I mean, these guys who do the logistics certainly for supermarkets, are great at that just-in-time delivery. How is seven days not enough for a, for a two-day journey? He collects once a week, probably. He, collect, he collects cars once a week. He, he didn't have to take it to his own place, do a layerage on them. There might be cancellation of a boat in the springtime because it's the weather is you're on an, it's weather dependent on the springtime. The ferry. Okay, so we're at kind of two days then. You had two or three days in. Is it, is it a couple of days? It's an overnight again, ready to go to Rasslayer, into Rasslayer to cross the Sherbrooke. He said it's practically impossible to get him across in a seven day window. It's practically impossible. So might this regulation then mean, unless Ireland gets a derogation, an end to the export of calves? It might end cars going to that market. There's obviously other markets, but it might, it'll make it harder for us to get him across there, and it definitely... Yeah. What happens if you're stuck with those cars here, then? 
it makes the life a lot harder. There's no question about it. I, I, I don't want to think about it. I don't. Okay, but you might have to. I so. might have to sometime, yes. <laughs> so, so to do that exercise with me now, I mean, how much extra grief are you looking at? Well, I'd have, I would probably have 40 cares, 40 freezing bull cares that, that are kind of, it's hard to get a home for them, to be honest about it. It would be hard to find a home for them. Like this year, there, I know the shipping was stopped for a week or 10 days there, and freezing bull cares went for zero in the marts, like. It does mean that you're going to have to get smart about your breeding choices, though, aren't you? No questions about it, yes, yeah. We No questions about it, yeah. You're going to have to go for the pick of the dairy-to-beef animals. Pick of the dairy-to-beef and breed. We breed it we, as it, over the last couple of number of years. We've bred more and more beef animals, but we haven't used sex semen yet. But I think if this comes in, we will definitely have to use sex semen. And we'll have, and we'll, to be, all the rest will be we'll bred to beef animals in. My thanks to DJ Kyohan and Tim Lee for putting up with me trotting around the yard asking them questions all morning long. So if, if getting these calves off the island is to become logistically impossible, do we end up having to keep them here? If so, where do we put them? What would we do with all of their emissions? To have a stab at answering these and many other questions, I'm joined by John Enright, General Secretary of the Dairy Farmer Representative Body, the ICMSA, Ray Doyle, the Livestock and Environmental Manager with the Co-op's Representative Body, ICOS, and Animal Welfare Activist Caroline Rowley from Ethical Farming Ireland. Caroline, can I start with you, please? Are you, first off, are you reassured by this possibility of no animal younger than a month old being exported? Um, good morning. Um, no, I'm not. Um, I'm 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 pleased by the increase of age to 21 days to move off farm because 10 days old is, is too young for a mart. But um, increasing the export age to 28 days isn't really going to be an improvement. A lot of them are 28 days anyway when they're exported, like the farmer that was just on previously years ago at 28 days. Um, at that point in their lives, their immunity is actually at its lowest. So they're still very much at risk. Um, the, or the immunity they had from the mother has worn off and their own immunity hasn't developed yet. And they're still dependent on milk for all their nutritional needs. So whilst they are a bit bigger and stronger than, than 14, 15 days, they're still very vulnerable. So as far as I'm okay. concerned, it's, it's, it's no improvement at all. So welcome, but it doesn't mean that the campaign stops here for you. You are going to continue until no. ultimately what? You get a complete ban on live exports? Um, well, no, I mean, ultimately, yes, that's what I, I would like. But um, obviously, you know, we have to be realistic. And I'd like to see the age raised to eight weeks. At that age, their immunity is fully developed and, and you know, they're weaned. They can, they can manage the journey. Um, I know that it would be a big difference. Like we couldn't just bring that in overnight. Um, you know, it'd have to be going stages. But, you know, if a farmer has the facilities, the infrastructure and the means to care for the calves for 10 days, 21 days, you know, another few weeks, I know it's an extra cost, but as they get older, you know, they should they should have more value. Um, and if the age is raised to 28 days, then, you know, no exporter is going to want to buy calves at 10 days old. So, you know, there, there is, there's a lot of changes that are going to have to be made, you know, and also, you know, the other guy you just had on um, kind of reference that they might, you know, if we can't export them, we might have to slaughter them. But the, the slaughter ban's coming in from board beer mm. as well. So, you know, there's a lot of changes that are, are happening and farmers are going to have to be prepared, you know. And like the, the guy you had who was talking earlier, sometimes ferries can be cancelled. One of the Stena ferries was out for about two or three months last year. So, you know, farmers need to be prepared for the for the, for the um, unexpected. And we have to remember that, you know, whilst there are a huge number of calves born around the spring season, only around 6% are actually exported. You know, the, the, the majority of them are reared here, um, you know, the in, 
integrated into the beef system here. So it can be done. It's just going to take a little time to get you know systems worked out and what have you. Well, can it be done? Let's bring in some of the other people joining us this morning. Ray Doyle, Livestock Environment Manager with ICOS. Can I get from you first off, please, a bit of the veal market for dummies? Explain to me, please, why is it that the guys on the continent will only take these animals as old as 35 days? Well, the, the veal industry is, is very well established on the continent, but it's it's unique to the continental Europe in, in particular. So our own tastes for beef and the UK market, we do not, uh, I suppose, have the taste for veal as they do in Holland, Spain and Italy, which are the main veal producers mm. and consumers that we Why have. Why 35 days, though? What? Well, the 35 days is, is, is a figure that I'm not sure what is the basis for, because, for example... Uh, the veal units that currently get the calves from Ireland uh, last year, for example, seventy percent of calves exported from Ireland for the uh, destined for the veal units in Holland. Their average age was twenty two and a half days, so they do not have a particular age requirement. They have a healthy calf requirement. Okay, but I thought that they wanted to get the meat for the white veal industry at a point where they could continue to feed it milk replacements and keep the meat white. For that, they want to get the calf as young as they possibly can. However, the EU legislation states the calf must be a minimum of 14 days to be transported. So therefore, they're never going to get a calf younger than 14 days of age. For the white field business, yes, it is important for them to get the calf as early as they can within the legal limits of 14 days. All right. Where they start them then on an intensive diet of of milk-based products and, and, and grains. So would you not necessarily share the fears of DJ Cohan's transporter that if he doesn't get the animals to the guy on the continent at 35 days that they're not going to want them, that there is going to be a bit of wriggle room there? Well, I think there might be a small bit of confusion as 35 days, but we have another, uh, I suppose, handcuff on export is that the, the TB regulations through the animal health law states that the animals must arrive in their destination farm before they are 42 days of age Otherwise, they need a TB test. So that is uh, the real pinch point for there. Uh, Germany, for example, since the 1st of January, has moved to 28 days for mm. their calves to move off farm. They supply approximately three to 400,000 veal calves a year to Holland. So those calves are now a minimum of 28 okay. days going up there. Uh, it's not just Germany that's changed, <coughs> excuse me, its uh, direction of travel on this, John Enright. There was a vote in the Dutch Parliament very recently in which 82 of 149 of their members of Parliament, specifically responding to a motion about imports from Ireland, said that they wanted to end the imports of young calves. Now, that wasn't a binding vote, but it's not hard to see the way things are moving on the continent. Yeah, that's right, Philip. There was a vote in the in the Dutch Parliament. Uh, I suppose the the Dutch elections are coming up later this month, and I think it will be significant to see what happens in those elections in the context of where that goes. But obviously, animal welfare is a very significant issue at EU level. It's a significant issue at Irish level, and to be to be fair to Irish farmers, they compare very very favourably uh, across the globe in terms of their. In, in terms of their practices on farm. So um, there is challenges there, but I think Ray's point is important. You know, the average age the cows are shipped out of this country is quite high. And I think, to be fair to our live shippers, they would be very, very mm-hmm. clear that they want an, an older calf. And they, they, they certainly, that's the type of calf they buy when they, when they are shipping calves. Reg- regardless of that, though, does that vote in the Netherlands, does the way the German government is viewing this now, not mean that you in the ICMSA, Ray and ICOS, need to be planning for a day when live exports might just not be possible? 
Yeah, and I think to, to be fair to the sector, the, the sector has, has been planning for a number of years for, for the changes with the with the growth in the dairy herd. You're seeing a huge amount of activity there in terms of we had we now have a dairy beef index where farmers can produce a better quality calf. We have a CBV value coming in where the national herd is being genotyped. A significant proportion of the national herd was genotyped this year so that if I'm buying a calf in the market uh, next year, I'll have a CBV value for that calf. Um, sex semen has been has been introduced in the country where where we'll we'll, we'll obviously have less Parisian bull yeah. calves. So there's a huge amount of activity going on already. Philip, to be fair, absolutely, all I of which is leading to incremental and small changes. All of which add up, and that, and that's acknowledged. But the rock and the hard place here, Ray, is that you have potentially three hundred thousand animals that might not in the future be able to leave the country. What do we do? Do we create a market for that young veal meat in this country or do we just say, um, God, we're going to have to take the hit on the emissions of allowing these animals to get to three years of age before they're slaughtered? It could well be a combination of both, but there there are, uh, just to add to John's point, there are lots of small incremental pieces actually occurring as we speak. The adoption of sex semen, in particular, John referred to there, almost 150,000 AI straws of sex semen was used last year. Still only about 7 or 8% of the total number. Though. It is, that's correct. However, that... Well, was, which goes to show yeah. you the changes that could be made and yeah. the improvements that could be made there. But but my, my big picture point here when you step back from this is you could be looking at a huge leap in emissions from agriculture if we don't solve this problem. Yes, and if that if that uh, Armageddon day was to happen, we would have to look at solutions fairly quickly. And it's a very some would some would contend it's an impossible task. But the famous quote: "Once upon a time, difficult things take time. Impossible is just a little bit longer." And that's <laughs> and that's what's going to happen here. But your question on the veal industry maybe being developed in Ireland, developing a white veal industry in Ireland would simply not work. We, are, we just don't have a taste we, for it. We don't have a taste for it. We don't have the infrastructure for it. And, you know, those animals are, are, are on a very uh, expensive, restrictive diet. However, there is even developments within this. Uh, Kevin Purcell from Purcell, Purcell Brothers in particular has, has in collaboration with a, 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 his some of his European partners, developed a, we'll call it halfway house between veal and young beef. Uh, slaughtered under 12 months of age that is grass fed because our major advantage in Ireland is our ability to grow grass that gives us our uh, economic advantage and our marketing advantage so therefore there may well be possible uh, uh, okay. possibility there there is a possibility there but the whole point at the same time of the export industry for the beef sector has been that there is an alternative outlet to the near monopoly situation of selling to a very small number of processors in this country if we were to lose that, if the beef industry was to lose that, it would put farmers in an awful bind, wouldn't it? Yes, it is a, is an extremely valuable uh, extra, I suppose, check and balance to keep the market correct. However, we do have significant uh, levels of live export of weaned animals, of large animals, of store animals, etc. E- even the, even this year, there's uh, several thousand animals going to uh, various third countries uh, and export within that. And as we progress towards producing better beef-bred animals, those markets may well develop even more for us because we they, that's the type of market they want. Caroline they want Rowley, product. last word to you briefly on this. Do you see a, a ban or an ending of the export industry for calves in your lifetime? Um, can I just quickly say on the, the, the Dutch um, 
talking about banning the, the import of cars. They have an um, they're bringing in a ban on importing any livestock from countries that don't have an IBR eradication program in place. An island doesn't have an IBR eradication program in place. Don't ask me what IBR means. But um, so that's that's going to be an issue as well as as well as um, stopping it for animal welfare reasons. But um, we have to bear in mind that the the actual percentage of animals being exported is very very small compared to the number of animals that are slaughtered here every year. So like exports to third countries on a busy year it's been around 27,000 which is less than the weekly slaughter rate. So that is not a direction that we want to go in. Okay. That's 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 a whole another area of cruelty um, and we don't want to go down there and it's not necessary. What I would really love to see is calf at foot dairies, dual purpose breeds. I know it's you know it's it's a you know, it's probably very difficult to do, but that's the kind of direction I'd like to see. Much higher welfare, better quality Indeed. produce but as with we've a smaller amount of animals. As we've yeah. reported in this programme in the past, it is being done quite successfully in a number of dairies in the UK. Perhaps yeah. it's time to go back and pay them another visit. Caroline Rowley, thank you very much. Ray Doyle and John Enright too. Ahead of the break, let me just say, the first programme I ever produced in RT Radio as a baby producer was The Gay Burn Show and Uncle Gay had two pieces of advice for producers. Never do a Bonnie Baby competition, he used to say, because you'll make enemies of all of the losers and the winner won't thank you for telling them what they already knew, that their baby was the most attractive baby in the whole wide world. And number two, he always second piece of advice from Uncle Gay was never trust a reporter who says that they've got a great idea for bringing back dancing on the radio. Coming up after the break, Brenda Donoghue has a great idea for bringing back dancing on the radio. Email countrywide at rte.ie Countrywide on RTE Radio 1. Ahead of Brenda tripping the light, fantastic. Let's just turn our attention briefly to the nature restoration law proposed, as you know, by the EU and, as you also know, has caused controversy in this country in no small measure with politicians, citizens, lobby groups arguing about it. Will it protect the environment? Will it damage farmers? And it has been a very, very heated debate at times. This week, the Commission, Parliament and Council concluded the negotiations, called the trialogue, and we now have a real sense of the final shape of of this legislation. So what are we to make of it? I'm joined by Una Duggan, Head of Policy and Advocacy at Birdwatch Ireland and by Paul O'Brien, Chair of the IFA Environment and Rural Affairs Committee. Good morning to you both. Thanks very much for joining us. Una, what are your thoughts now on this near completed text? Yeah, near completed. Another couple of steps to go. But if it's passed in the in the next few weeks, we'd be looking at a global first um, for a continent to set um, uh, targets and timelines to restore uh, nature um, on land and sea. So 20%, the target would be 20% of land and sea to be restored by 2030, 60% by 2040 and 90% by 2050. So this gets us on the road to tackling the climate and biodiversity crisis, but it's not as strong as it could have been. But still, we're happy to see that it's close to being agreed. Watered down from the Commission's initial proposals, which I think you also said could have been stronger as well. Will it do enough? No, I don't think so. But you know what my feeling is on this? I think once we see the uh, efforts of restoration um, start to kick in, once we see the economic benefits, once we see that we're taking action and... 
uh, you know, feeling that sense of control um, about tackling these crises, I think we're going to see more natural efforts arise. So even when it comes to addressing this on farmland, and I'm really, we're really pleased to see the agriculture um, ecosystems brought back into the the deal. They were removed. It was removed. Um, it, it is, it, it, I honestly believe that farmers will in time want to actually uh, Take, take this up more and there will be funding available um, for it in the Nature and Climate um, Fund as well that government announced in budget in, in the budget this year. So I think it's, I, I have, I'm always optimistic. Um, I know the work that farmers are doing on land already and I really do think there's an opportunity here for them. Paul O'Brien, as Una says, agricultural ecosystems were after lobbying removed. Now, after lobbying in the other direction, they're back in again. Agricultural ecosystems being a sort of a posh way of saying farmland. Does this give you cause for concern now? Uh, good morning, Philip. Good morning, Una. Um, it gives me major concerns, Philip. Um, Article 9 was withdrawn after the parliamentary vote. So Article 9 went through four individual votes in the parliament in different stages and at the full preliminary article nine agricultural ecosystems was didn't get through any of that process but has been reintroduced in the trilogues so therefore yes i have major concerns and the major concerns i have is the ability of farmers to be able to farm on pta type soils so we look at the totals and the totals are fairly you know high 30 percent of nature restoration by 2030, of which 25% has to be re-wet. That goes up to 50% by 2050, which 33% will need to be re-wetted. And Philip, while the country might meet its first target of 30% um, easily using state-owned land, it says we go further along the line to 2050, when more land will have to be incorporated in order to meet this new law. I know, but, but, but Paul, hang on one second, because before you go putting uh, the fear into every farmer on peaty soils in the country who's listening in this morning, the key thing that has happened in the latest text is re-wetting remains voluntary. No farmer who mm-hmm. is currently farming on peaty land is going to have to do anything that they don't want to do. But re-wetting, Philip, is only a part of the process. So... of land farmed, by 2050, only a third of that would need to be re-wetted. But it's the other type of farming practices that will probably have to be, or or possibly will be affected. By this, it goes much further than Article 9. So we have fears. The IFA has called 18 months ago, looking for an impact assessment to see the enormity or the potential damage that this could possibly have to farming okay. income. But do you really think that farming- do you really think that we have the time to sit around and conduct 10, 20 year longitudinal studies to assess the effect of this, that we shouldn't just be putting something in place now and modifying as we go along? Philip, Philip we've had since 20, since December 2019, in order to get at least baseline figures of the amount of land needed, we have failed to get even that very, very basic, you know, understanding of how much land could be impacted by this. So we don't even know the totality of land. So therefore, we have had plenty of opportunity since the farm to fork 
was announced by Ursula van der Leyen in December 2019. So there has been a good opportunity to at least get baseline understanding figures of the amount of land. Okay. And that has failed to be done. Una? So, yes, farmers are going to be very concerned today. Now, there is an opportunity, once all of this gets over the line in Brussels, to sit down with the government to discuss over two-year period before they have to introduce their plan okay. back to Brussels. So, it's, it's, so, so Philip, there's major concerns today. Final quick word to you, Una. Yeah, I, I totally hear Paul's concerns and the farmers are concerned, but I would just say we um, had a webinar with Dr. Flo Renew-Wilson on raising the water table on peat, on peat soils that are, are uh, under agriculture production. And that research that Flo has done shows that there, with manipulation of the water table, raising it to a certain amount, you, you, there is no impact on production. So I would just okay. highly recommend people to look at that. It's on our YouTube channel. Please look at the video and look at the science. So we do need to look at the science on this. And it all remains voluntary as well as the key thing there. Yes, Una, absolutely. Una Duggan and Paul O'Brien, thank you both very much for joining me this morning. Now, as they say in all the best broadcasting emporiums, for something completely different. Good morning there. How are you, Brenda? Good morning, Philip. Um, yeah. I like to think of myself as somebody who has a finger on the pulse, but this week you pointed out to me that a major moment had passed me Yeah, by. well, here's the really weird thing. You do have your finger on the pulse because you were wearing the same colour shirt that David Beckham wore when he did the dance with Victoria. He's always copying me. Yeah, I know that. Identical. He's are identical. <laughs> <laughs> what is the, the major moment? I mean, I thought that I was doing well to know that there was a Bex series yeah. on Netflix, but apparently there is a moment at the very, very tail end. At of the it. very end. So this Netflix doc landed on October 4th. It has, I think in the first week it racked up 3.8 million views, nearly as big as Harry and Meghan. But at the, and it's everything, you know, it's a life story in his football in the 90s and to, uh, 20, 2020s, the hairstyles, the fashion, the affair, it's all there. But it's the last 21 seconds and they're having a barbecue in this beautiful kind of barbecue setting that he has. And the two of them just spontaneously are as rehearsed spontaneity dance <laughs> to the wonderful Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton Ireland's in the street. What a banger of a 21. song. And they do a particular step called the electric slide. They slow it down and they do and it feels very natural. So what's happened is couples have been testing each other all around the world on this thing called the Beckham Challenge. Hashtag Beckham Challenge. Hashtag. And they dress up some dress up like them mainly happens in the kitchen. They put the song on and then they test to see, will their partner join in? OK, and the test of how true your love is, how long the woman is left standing there with Kenny and Dolly playing yeah. in the background. Well, it's kind of deeper than that, OK? Because oh, a so lot of people have analysed, why is this caught on? Because there's something like 8 million views on social media platforms of different couples from all over the world, all types of couples, families, everything doing this. So why is it copped on? A psychologist, right, has talked about this. And this is Marianne Fisher. She's a uh, psychology professor in St. Mary's University in Canada. And she's explained why are we so 
captured by that 21 seconds. And she said, the Beckham challenge is not so much about whether your partner is your true love, but really about sharing a joyful, low stakes, fun moment together. They see what you're up to. They join in in a fun, supporting and engaging way. And don't just sit there with the arms folded over the other side of the room going, what are you at? They're all doing it. Footloose's, Kevin Bacon's doing it. So I decided, well, if it's good enough for Kevin Bacon, David Beckham, I need to find out about it. But anyway, look... I was obsessed with it. So I said, is it actually a phenomenon? And uh, I contacted a guy I know called Niall Dory. And Niall runs social jive dance classes all over the country. I said, have people actually been asking you about this? He said, they have. It's so weird. He said, I'm actually teaching it now. The actual step in my class, I said, say no more. Go away. Go away. Into the- <laughs> Go away. So you went. I did. And I went down to um, the well in Moat. Uh-huh. And it was just amazing. It was a horrible Wednesday evening. It was raining. Car park was full. But there inside, was that, hearts were aglow. Is there was that beautiful say? buzz of people greeting each other and meeting and having the chat. And the class was actually on. And I said to Niall Dorley, is this actually a thing? How come this oasis in the Midlands is full of about 200 people all jiving? Left foot, right to your left. left. Yeah, yeah, Brenda, it's great to see a crowd down there. But every Wednesday night, we've been, I've been running here 15 years and uh, it's kind of like the bingo of the week. Everybody comes <laughs> down and I get them coming in from busloads from different parts of the country, Dublin and Galway and all the Midlands here as well. Well covered. I'm right in the middle of the heart of Ireland here on the motorway, 10 minutes from Athlone <laughs> and people are loving it. Uh, something to do on a Wednesday night. I'm surprised at the age profile here because we've an awful lot of people in their 20s and 30s. Yeah, I think since the pandemic, younger people especially have uh, maybe changed attitudes towards nightclubs and uh, social outings like that. And they learned to cope with different ways of meeting people uh, during the pandemic time. So it's, I suppose on the back of that, I noticed a lot of younger people have come in to the classes. And I think a lot to do with uh, the decline in nightclubs. And maybe they just got, uh, maybe they're back to the roots of uh, meeting people through meeting people and actually at, at social dance events. And then when jiving is a great way of uh, the youngsters really get adrenaline from it. And it's so cool for them. Like now, and when I turn on my TikTok, all I see is jive videos, like left, right and centre. And they're all competing with each other. It's great. It's great to see it. You have a huge passion for social dancing. Tell me what it means to you in your life. Uh, for me, social dancing is, is everything in my life uh, right now. You know, um, obviously family comes first. But for me, social dancing is my life. It's always two or three hours a night. You don't you know, think about your worries. You don't think about what's happening in the news. You don't think about all the downside of life. And it's just great to get that escapism. And it's really, really healthy for mentally. For me, it's kept me going through a lot of hard times in my life. And I see that from people coming into classes as well. They said, you know, it, it changed their life. Because I know people rely on me here. If I'm not here on Wednesday night, I mean, I don't know what these people are going to do. So I feel like I'm the doctor on call and it keeps me going as well. So we're going to learn the Posh and Bex dance. Yeah, I've, I've seen it on the documentary. A lot of people have been asking me and we're going to give it a shot and see how it goes. You know, it's just an electric slide, very simple dance, three steps, little click, a little slap here, there. We might even hold a point while we're doing it. It's at the very, very, very end of the documentary and people are like, that's the bit they took from it. That's the trend they took from it. And that just shows you the power of dance and what it does for people and, and the way it brings people together. And that's why I want to teach this tonight. All right, so Philip, yourself and myself are going to do our little audition for Dancing with the Stars in a few minutes' time. But in the line dance of duty, I thought you've got such a serious That's a terrible line. There. That's a terrible line. 
line dance of Jesus. I think it's fantastic. I chatted to some of the people who'd come along to see had they come to actually learn the electric slide or what is it about social dancing that is so important for in their lives that makes them come out on a miserable Wednesday night and do a little bit of dancing. Well, I think it's because it's just so much fun. Gets you out of the house on a Wednesday, keeps you fit and you get to meet loads of lovely people. Yeah. Oh, yeah, my, my weekend starts on a Wednesday. I always said that. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen Posh and Bex's version of the dance? We have, yeah. And? We loved it. Absolutely loved it. We love Posh and Bex anyway. Well, I, I, me particularly, Victoria Beckham, always have. And he'd be a big David Beckham fan, so yeah. And I would have been a United fan growing up, so I like Bex, yeah. To be honest with you, we were sat on the sofa and when they were actually doing the dance, we were, John says to me, imagine they're line dance. And I was like, oh my God, they are. <laughs> so we were like, fair play to them because it's so much fun. And we're only, we're only newbies. We've only started probably less than two years. No, two just years over the two years, yeah. yeah. After COVID, our girls are older now. We did pitch and pull um, and then became, well, I always, I always wanted to learn how to jive. And we came to I had to drag John, you know, and he came with his hands in his pockets. He thought he was too cool for school. As soon as he got his feet moving, should have never stopped. Now, we do the electric slide now a little bit quicker. You've seen it there yourself tonight, yeah. didn't you? So the posh and begs. But I said to her, I said, that's only electric slide. Slow down. So we go one, two, three, together, back, two, three. And we step back. And it's just a little rock step then, isn't it? Instead of a normal. And then we turn. <laughs> yeah. Eva and Megan. Oh my God, you're absolutely stunning looking. <laughs> you women. Says yourself. <laughs> Inspired by David and Victoria. 100%, yeah. Explain. I think it brings it back to life, the whole country music thing, the dancing, um, Posh and Bex, I mean, they're so relevant right now at the minute. And uh, yeah, hopefully it'll get more young people coming in. Have you nailed the dance? Not yet, but we're working on it. We'll be back next week. We plan on making a TikTok. Yeah. yeah of, of the dance. The dance. Oh, 100%. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Why not? Should we might as well? If there's any David Beckham. <laughs> we're here in the well. <laughs> Every Wednesday night. Man's right hand. Ladies right hand. Okay, this Aquinas. Is Aquinas. Yes. That's an amazing name. Where did you me get that My mother should have got a medal for it. Quiny <laughs> <laughs> for short. Tell me, what do you do for a living? Um, I'll be her spray painter. You're here every Wednesday oh, night? Every sure? Wednesday, yeah. Every and Wednesday. who are you here with? Oh, my wife. And what do you get from it as a couple? Oh, sure, it's a buzz. Yeah. You get away from what you're doing every day. You come in here, you forget about what you're at all day. You come in here and it's just dance, dance, dance. The minute we hear the music, we're gone. When we started out, like the only reason we started out dancing was because our daughter was getting married. Mm. And we decided we need to do something. We weren't going to be like two weeks on the dance floor. And sure, ever since that, sure, like it's just, it's a crave now to us. When we walk in that door and the music is there on the floor, it's a new lease of life. Have you seen the David Beckham video? No, nothing about him. I know, I'd say it as it is. I know nothing about it. I know it's in football. I'd peg stones in the drunk enough on field. Joan, you're a seasoned line dancer. That's right, Brenda, absolutely. Yeah. Explain. We started to learn for our daughter's wedding and we got hooked. And that's it, we've been at it ever since. Absolutely brought a massive spark into it. Like, we're 40 years married this year and it's rekindled. We're nodding. We're nodding, we're <laughs> nodding. It's rekindled, it's rekindled that, that initial romance. As you know, you get you're married, kids, they grow up, they leave, and you're just looking, you're there one another, then line dancing, and look forward to these Wednesday nights. It's like date nights with loads of people, and ourselves. All right, guys, come around there, we're going to do a, another move on the drive there, guys. Neve and Sergio, why are you here, Neve? 
We're learning how to dance for our wedding. <laughs> yes, something shows we love each other, and yeah. that's. So, Neve, tell me, what dance are you learning? What's the plan? Well, it's uh, supposed to be a secret, but we're planning to do the Posh and Beck dance for our first dance at our wedding next year. But it's supposed to be a secret. <laughs> <laughs> tell me a little bit about the two of you. I'm from Moldova. Come to Ireland a few years. We just come neighbors and meet each other he first time outside actually when we met first met each other he was moving in next door and the minute we seen each other we knew straight away that we were going to be together it's like we had our own language through our eyes i feel fire or i was a uh, flam <laughs> and my heart my flame yeah that butterfly <laughs> is really amazing beautiful I love him. I love every bit of him. Every every crazy little bit about you. Every, I love it. Every, every. <laughs> Neve and Sergio, lovely to meet you. Best of luck for your wedding. Oh, well, you let's see so this uh, Posh and Bex dance then. Oh, okay, yeah. go. Islands in the stream. That is what oh, the best to Sergio yes. and Neve. Enough gas bagging though. Are you actually going to teach us yes, this dance? Yes, let's do it. I uh, Nile taught the dance then. 200 on the floor. If you're listening to Countrywide this morning, you fancy doing it. You're in your kitchen, you're in your shed, you're in your field. Come and do the electric slide with Philip and myself. Are you ready, Philip? I don't know if I ever will. Well, Nile is going to talk us through it. Okay. Right, guys. Okay, so we're doing the Posh and Bex dance. It's not their dance, but we're, we've been doing it for years. But we're going to show them, we're going to show them the way we do it here uh, in the well of boat. So we look forward to guys. So we're going to turn the face this way, lads. If you're a couple, even better. And if you have a pint glass in your hand for the man, even better. Okay, guys, this is an electric slide. It's very slow, right? Very, very slow uh, tempo. So nice small steps, guys. To the right first, we go one, two, three. Together, one, two, three. The lean, click, back. Clap, that's all it is, a good lean, click, back, clap, and scuff. So lads, we're gonna put this to music, are you ready? Lean, click, back, clap. I tell you, Uncle Gay is going to be proven right. Before <laughs> we do that, though, let me just say our BCO, Amandine Paso Divine, did the hop change, the sound desk, Tommy O'Sullivan did the grapevine. The whole show was triple stepped by Brenda Donahue and Eileen Heron. Sinead Mooney on the way after the news. So now. Let's do it. Right, up you go. Are you ready? Am I not supposed to leave you standing just a little ladies bit? Ladies' choice, no. Philip. Ladies' so choice. Up. So right. It's the great thing about social dancing. You don't need a partner. <laughs> so here we go. Two steps to the right. One. Oh, hang on, which is right? Two. This, this oh, is for right. God's sake. Oh, all right, this right. Way. You're driving. Yes. One, two. two. Yes. I'm back. Now, click, heel, oh turn. My God. Look at that. We're just like Countrywide on RTE Radio 1. Listen back on the RTE Radio Player.